Well, shalom, shalom. Tonight we're going to have a little adventure in the prophets. We're going to turn to Yeshayahu, Isaiah, and we're going to look at Isaiah chapter 66 tonight. Because it's been mentioned several times, and I think it's a very valid point, people turn to Isaiah 66 into the latter verses and um, often say, well, with the teaching that you're doing about the Malkizedek, I still see a Levitical priesthood here. And this is future, this is millennial. So I want to address that because I think that's a very important um, thing that we should look at in the Scriptures when we come to Isaiah 66. But before we get there, turn with me to Bereshit, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Of course, Genesis, we know, this is the oath covenant where Yahweh swore he swore by no one higher than himself to Avraham and we read now Yahweh had said to Avraham get out of your country and from your mishpocha your family and from your abba's bayit your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation And I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a bracha. You shall be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curses you. And in you shall all the mishpochat, families of the earth, be blessed. Let's look at that last verse, and I'll give it a crack in the Hebrew. Va'avarecha. Me varechecha u ma kelecha ao ve nivrechu vecha kol mishpochat ha adama. I want to focus in on one Hebrew word in this last verse that is a prophetic game changer, which is going to lead us all the way into the prophet Isaiah and then connect us back with the oath, Malkitzedic oath, that Yahweh swore to Avraham. And it's this Hebrew word, nivrechu, nivrechu. And it means to be mingled or to be mixed. And in you, all of the mishpochat, families of the earth, shall be mingled, shall be mixed. There's a promise here, and it's going to go out from this point on. And then the prophet's going to have a vision, and his vision is going to encompass this very prophecy and going to connect us all the way back, and we'll finish right where we started. Yeshayahu is Hebrew name, Isaiah ben Amos. Ben Amos, the son of Amos. The writing of Isaiah, it's about the mid-century, mid-8th century before the common era. Now, before we get into Isaiah 66, let's address some, some of our more contemporary scholars. Because our more contemporary scholars, I think lacking faith because they're high academia... They've divided the book of Isaiah into three sections. Number one, we have the Isaiah to Jerusalem. 
And this is chapters 1 through 39. This is the first section that the modern contemporary scholars have divided Isaiah into. And it's to Isaiah of Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 39. Now, the second section of Isaiah is to a prophet at the time of the exile, and it's commonly called Deutero-Isaiah. Deutero-Isaiah, second Isaiah, and it's chapters 40 through 55. And then we have our third section by the more contemporary scholars, and it's to a post-exilic, it's a post-exilic prophet And it's called the third Isaiah, and this is chapters 56 to 66. So, in fact, modern scholars generalizing here only believe that Yeshayahu ben Amoz wrote chapters 1 through 39. That it was, in fact, another prophet at the time of the exile that wrote Deutero-Isaiah 40 through 55, and then it was another post-exilic prophet that wrote 3rd Isaiah chapters 56 through 66. Now, why? Why do they believe this? I believe it's because they have a big problem reconciling the last half of the book as the predictions of Isaiah. They can't come to grasp with how this could truly be Isaiah, the last half of the book. You see, oracles of doom begin the book. Isaiah goes on with these oracles of doom. That's how the book opens. But themes of consolation, beginning in chapter 40, end the book with the return from exile, and this is why they stumble, over two centuries later. So the latter chapters of the book are over two centuries later. They happen over two centuries later. And they don't have the faith, it seems, to be able to reconcile that Isaiah could see and could have the vision of Yahweh two centuries into the future. Chapters 1 through 39 are addressed to a nation during the Assyrian invasions. And that happened 740 to 700 before the Common Era. Chapters 40 through 55 are to the exiles in Babylon. And that's from 600 to 539 before the Common Era. And chapters 56 through 66 are to the community after its return to the land from 539 to 500 before the common era. Can you see that's over a 200-year jump? And this is where we find chapter 66. Chapter 66 is to the community After its return from the land over two centuries later than the beginning of the book. And that's what's so hard for contemporary scholars to grasp. They can't seem to grasp that Isaiah miraculously prophesies the very name of Cyrus. The very name of Cyrus more than a century beforehand. 
in Isaiah 44, verse 28. More than a century beforehand, Isaiah prophesies about Cyrus. They can't seem to wrap their heads around that. But then Isaiah does something even grander, far grander. He tops it by predicting Yeshua's birth by a virgin in chapter 7. And then he tops that by predicting Yeshua's death by crucifixion and his subsequent resurrection in Isaiah 53, which we're all familiar with as believers in the Messiah. Some would even assert, now some would even assert that Isaiah predicted the false flag of 9-11 in chapter 9 verse 8, which is a fabulous little study in itself. But what does the scripture teach us? Does the scripture teach us that we've got first Isaiah, Deutero Isaiah, and then third Isaiah? What should we believe? Should we believe the contemporary scholars? Turn with me to Yochanan, John chapter 12, verse 37. But though he, Yeshua, had done many Nisim signs before them, yet they believed not on him, that the sayings of Yeshayahu, Isaiah the prophet, might be fulfilled, which he spoke saying, Yahweh, and now he's going to quote Isaiah 53, verse 1. Who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the master Yahweh been revealed? Verse 39. Therefore they could not believe, because Yeshayahu, Isaiah said again, Isaiah 6, 10, he's now going to quote, They have blinded their eyes and hardened their leaven-oat hearts that they should not see with their eyes nor understand with their leaven-oat hearts and return and I would heal them. These things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spoke of him. So we can see from the text that John has no problem attributing proto-Isaiah Isaiah 6.10, and Deutero-Isaiah, Isaiah 53, verse 1, simply to the prophet Isaiah. So, Isaiah wrote the whole book according to John and the New Testament, the Brit Hadashah. So now, let's look into chapter 66 with that small introduction. Now, Isaiah served Yahweh. This is key. Isaiah served Yahweh in a role as a covenant prosecutor. Now, think about that for a minute. When we're talking about the Malkit Zedek, what are we talking about? It's all about covenant. The book of the covenant, blood ratification, Covenant confirming meals, covenant, covenant, covenant. So Isaiah here has a particular charge by Yahweh, and his charge is to be a covenant prosecutor. His messages consisted of charges, condemnation, and judgments as he declares Yahweh's curses on Israel, Yahweh's curses on Judah, and Yahweh's curses on the nations. Isaiah is summoned to represent the heavenly court. Now, where did the Malkit Zedek come from? 
the earthly realm? Or was it the shadow picture that Moshe was to make a replica of? Isaiah is summoned to represent the heavenly court in Jerusalem's earthly court system. And that's what he did. He was to represent the heavenly court in Jerusalem's earthly court system. Israel and Judah, they'd become like the Gentiles. You could barely distinguish between them and the nations and the Gentiles. They had lost all vision. They'd lost all vision of Yahweh's kingdom, all vision of Yahweh's kingdom of righteousness, Malchut Zadachah, and they tried to establish their own righteousness within their own earthly kingdom. And Isaiah, he has a problem with this. As did the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 10, verse 3. For they, being ignorant of Yahweh's Zedekah, they go about to establish their own Zedekah, their own righteousness. They have not submitted themselves to the Zedekah of Yahweh, the righteousness of Yahweh. For Mashiach, Messiah, listen to this, Messiah is the actual goal of the Torah. And that is why we're here tonight. To see that Yeshua is the goal of the Torah for what? For an eternal, zadik, righteous standing to everyone that believes. Could the Levitical priesthood that we have really, once we drill down and we examine that phrase, like I said last week, it's really not a Levitical priesthood. It's an Aaronic priesthood. There's no such thing in the Tanakh as a Levitical priesthood. That doesn't appear until the writer of the book of Hebrews speaks to his audience in reference to the restoration and transference to Melchizedek. There is an Aaronic priesthood, but the general sons of Levi couldn't be a part of the priesthood. That's why Korah, who wasn't a son of Aaron, he challenged the priesthood because he wasn't a part of it. So this whole idea that when we see Levi and priest, oh, it's the Levitical priesthood. That's our Western cultural knee-jerk reaction. Because in truth, there isn't a Levitical priesthood where all of the Levites could serve in the priesthood. Never was, never was, never was. There is an Aaronic priesthood. That's a distinction that needs to be made, especially in light of tonight's teaching in Isaiah chapter 66. So we find in Romans 10 verse 4, for Messiah is the actual goal of the Torah for an eternal Zadik standing to everyone that believes. You cannot, you cannot get a righteous Zadik standing through the Aaronic priesthood or the Levitical book of the law. You simply cannot get an eternal eternal righteous standing through the book of the law doesn't exist you can get a temporary enactment you can get your sins forgiven for one year it is called a temporary enactment of law 
But this is what Paul says, that Yeshua is the goal of the Torah. So does it have to be something distinctly different than the book of the law? It does. Because within Yeshua's walk, we find that he is going to bring us into an eternal righteous standing. That the man who does those things shall live by them, but the zadokah that is of emunah, the righteousness that is of faith, speaks in this manner. And he goes on to speak more. Isaiah chapter 66 ends with a vision. And what a vision it is. It's a vision from the heavenly court where there's covenant restoration. The covenant prosecutor has a vision of covenant restoration. Can you see now a theme building? The covenant prosecutor now toward the very latter chapters and verses, the latter chapter and latter verses, now has a vision of covenant restoration within Yahweh's kingdom of righteousness. So if we're right about the book of the covenant being restored, then we should see evidence of it here in Isaiah 66, shouldn't we? Now, if we're wrong, then we should see a return to the status quo and a precise reinstatement of Levitical Torah. It's got to be one or the other, correct? A, we're either going to see the book of the covenant being restored, covenant restoration to Yahweh's kingdom of righteousness, or B, we're going to see a return to the Levitical book of the law status quo precisely. That's what we're going to see, one or the other. But like I said, before we start, let's be clear. There is no Levitical priesthood in Torah. It's an Aaronic priesthood. The Levites were general laborers to the priesthood, but not part of the priesthood. That's why we find Korah, the Levite, rebelling and trying to hijack the priesthood. General Levites were not admitted into the priesthood, but they served as laborers to the priesthood. Now we're going to get into this tripartite division of utopian messianism, where Isaiah's universalist vision of ecumenicalism triumphs over the logical and national divisions. Isaiah 66 and verse 18. For I, knowing their works and their thoughts, shall come, and I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come, and they shall see my tifereth, my glory. And I will put an oat, a sign on them, and I will send some of them as survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, to Pul and Lud, that draw the bow, to Tuval, 
and to Yavan, to the coastlands far off that have not heard of my fame. Neither have they seen my Tifereth, my glory. And they shall declare my Tifereth, my glory among the Gentiles. And they shall bring all your brothers for an offering to Yahweh out of all nations. Goy, nations, goy upon horses and upon Merkavot, chariots and on litters and upon wagons and upon swift beasts to my Kadosh, holy mountain, Yerushalayim, Jerusalem, says Yahweh, as the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel into the Bait, the house of Yahweh. So here we see something drastically different than has ever happened before. Yahweh is calling the Gentiles to come up into his house. To come up into his house, to be an offering, to join with all the brothers and come as one into the house of Yahweh. Now look at verse 21. My Kadosh mountain is where they're going, says Yahweh. As the children of Israel bring an offering and a clean vessel into the Bait, house of Yahweh, mingled, the Hebrew word here is lachak, among them la koanim, la leviim, says Yahweh. Now in the Hebrew, it says this, lachak koen leviim amar Yahweh. It says that the Gentiles are going to come up and be mingled with the Levites. They're going to be mingled in with the priests as priests together. This is huge, especially if you're familiar with the Torah portions over the years. Especially if you're familiar with the Torah portions. I love this scriptural passage in Kepha Olive. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Of this salvation, the prophets, this would include Isaiah, listen. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired, and they have searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Messiah who was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Messiah and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed, not to themselves, but to us. Meaning that it wasn't all revealed to the prophets, but it was revealed to us. But to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel. Peter told us that the prophets of old didn't write for their time and for their benefit. But their writings were for our admonition today. This is amazing. And very humbling, isn't it? Isn't that humbling? The truths of what those prophets wrote were not revealed to those prophets, such as Isaiah himself. They testified of the sufferings of Yeshua and the transformations that he alone 
could usher in. They testified of the sufferings of Messiah and the transformations that he alone could usher in. Because if there's anyone that can transform anything, it's Yeshua. The opening verses of Isaiah 66 verse 1. No temple can contain Yahweh. And it's balanced in its conclusion with, to the heavens and to the earth. We end up in the latter verses of chapter 66 with a new creation by Yahweh. So the visionary temple is a place of what? This visionary temple that Isaiah sees is a place of universal worship. Universal worship. We know the priesthood under Melchizedek is very different from what was under the law, the book of the law. For under the law, one family, Aaron, from one tribe, Levi, exclusively was admitted to the priesthood. And the Gentiles, as unclean, were so far from having it in their power to discharge that priesthood that they were forbidden to enter into the temple. Absolutely forbidden under the book of the law to enter into the temple. Yet here... Yet here, there's a change. There's a transference. There is something illegal according to the book of the law in Isaiah 66. The Gentiles are elevated, elevated by Yahweh himself to the highest honor. Now unclean and polluted nations are reckoned to be a holy people. Where did that happen? Where was the last time that happened in Scripture? When a mixed multitude came out of Egypt, they came to the mountain and they were elevated to a holy people, a royal priesthood, able to partake of everything together, equal as one. That was the last time that that happened in Exodus chapter 19. After the mixed multitude, including unclean Egyptians who'd seen the miracles of Yahweh and said, we don't want to stay around with Pharaoh and his mess, we're leaving. And the mixed multitude joined and they were as one with the Levites, as one with the rest of the tribes, the Judahites, those from all tribes, they're all admitted inside. Look at verse 19. This then must be speaking after Messianic Reformation. It must be speaking after Messianic Reformation when the Aaronic priesthood would be changed and cease. When the Aaronic priesthood would change and cease after Messianic Reformation as written in the book of Hebrews. Because under the book of the law, the Aaronic priesthood couldn't, wouldn't, and didn't admit Gentiles or any other tribe, let alone Levi. Yet here, we have ecumenicalism. Everybody, all nations that were 
beforehand unclean are elevated to a kadosh, holy status, and mingled with the priests and Levites. Numbers 18.7 explains what the book of the law says. Therefore, you and your sons with you shall shoma guard your Cohen's office for all things pertaining to the altar and inside the veil, and you shall serve. I have given your Cohen's, your priest's office, to you as a gift for service, and the girl, the stranger that comes near, shall be put to death. Isaiah 66 is not, cannot be the book of the law. Part of Torah. Verse 22 of Numbers 18. Neither must the children of Israel from now on come near the tabernacle of the congregation, lest they bear their sin and die. Book of the law. Deuteronomy Chapter 23, verse 1. He that is wounded in the stones or has his private member cut off shall not enter the congregation of Yahweh. A bastard shall not enter into the congregation of Yahweh. Even to his tenth generation shall he not enter the congregation of Yahweh. Yet in Isaiah, there's a transformation. A transformation back to the status of Exodus 19. How can that be? How can that be? In Isaiah chapter 66, we find non-Israelites in the priestly service unseen. Unseen since the mixed multitude, Exodus 12, at the book of the covenant mountain, Exodus 19. They are mingled in with the priests and Levites as one allowed to go into the temple of Yahweh. There is neither male or female, Greek, slave or you're all one in Messiah. All one in Messiah if there's a transference and messianic reformation. In a book of the law reality, none but those from the tribe of Levi could be taken into in a literal sense. But here, here Gentiles are said to be taken in as such. So it can't be. It can't be a literal book of the law interpretation. There is no way. It has to be a literal book of the covenant reality. After messianic reformation and as such, it's talking about the Gentiles coming up to the temple. Look what it says. All your brethren, verse 20. All means all, which means all. All tribes together as priests, as in Exodus 19. They were mingled. The Hebrew word there, lachak, means they were mingled. Verse 21, with the Levites, a tribe, not a priesthood, a tribe. They were mingled with a tribe, just like they were mingled with Naphtali, just like they're they're mingled with Yehuda, just like they're mingled with Ephraim. They're mingled together, all one 
in Messiah, Galatians 4.28, 1 Peter 2.5. Verse 21, and from them likewise I will take some, la koanim, la levim, said Yahweh. Said Yahweh. There is no conjunction and in the text. There is no conjunction and in the text. It doesn't say, just like the the King James Version or the NIV or the New Living NLT, BLT, whatever they call it. They all have and, but that isn't in the text. And I will also take some of them. That isn't in the text. It doesn't say for priests and for Levites. You see, we just read that because of the King Jimmy and the other translations. We have to dig deeper than just scratching the surface. If it did say for priests and for Levites, that would be a different Hebrew phrase. That would be lechonim ule leviim, which does not appear in the text, but is added by modern Bible translators. The Hebrew word that does appear is lachak, mingled, mingled. Among them, lakoanim, la leviim, says Yahweh, lachak, kohen, levi, amah, Yahweh, in the Hebrew. Which brings me back to where we started. Because this is amazing. Bereshit, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3. Now Yahweh said to Avram, Get out of your country and from your mishpocha and from your Abba's Bayit house to a land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a bracha. Now I'll have a crack at the Hebrew again in verse 3. I'm a bit rusty. I used to do this every single Shabbat. I used to read from the Torah scroll. It's been years, see? Changes, changes. Verse 3 of, Hebrew, of um, Genesis chapter 12 in the Hebrew, Va'avarecha me'varechecha u'mechalecha a'or Ve nivrechu, there's our Hebrew word, nivrechu, vecha kol mishpochat ha adama. And I will bless them that bless you and curse him that curses you, and in you shall all of the earth be mingled. Mingled. This is the connecting rod to Isaiah's vision, lachak. In the Hebrew from Genesis 12, reading from right to left in the third verse, we come to the fifth word, and it's the Hebrew word, ve-nivrechu, ve-nivrechu. The Hebrew word often translated as blessed is the Hebrew word ve-nivrechu. And ve-nivrechu, Of all the times blessing is intended, the word generally that you find in the Tanakh is barak, barak. Or you can sometimes find yivrechu or yaverech. 
these are variants of Barak, but we find something different here. You see, after Yahweh uses the other forms of the word for blessing, like I read, we find va avarecha, and I will bless. And then we find the other Hebrew word, me varechecha, one's blessing you. He then switches. Why does he switch? Yahweh then switches within the very same verse, and he uses this Hebrew word, ve nivrechu. Ve nivrechu, describing specifically, down to the mind, that's why I love the Hebrew. Specifically, he drills this out and points it to you of how he is specifically going to fulfill his promise to Abraham. Down to the minutest detail, we've got to dig down beneath the surface because if you boot up your blue letter Bible, all you're going to find is braka. But you've got to dig down below that. And oftentimes people don't realize, because they don't have a Torah scroll, that the blue letter Bible isn't going word for word as it is penned by the Torah scroll. I think that's put out by Calvary Chapel, isn't it? The blue letter Bible. I think it might be. That's very suspect. We've got to drill down further than the Bet Resh Kaf of Barak, used most often in this text meaning blessing, to find this gem, Nivrechu. Nivrechu. Because Nivrechu, it appears three times in the Tanakh. Three times, that's it. Do you want to know where those places are? It's extremely telling. Bereshit, chapter 12, Genesis, chapter 12, verse 3. Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, and Genesis chapter 28, verse 14, all three times it speaks of how Abraham will affect the nations on the earth through the Malkitzedic covenants of promise of mingling the seed and fulfilling the equality of priesthood covenant promises that Isaiah has the vision of the Lachak mingling. All three times. The verb ve-nivrechu in Genesis 12.3 is related to the root barak, bet-resh-kaf, as in the term Ma, ma, mavrik, meaning to intermingle or to graft in. But the Hebrew word nivrechu, it's the nifel conjunction of the root word barak. Literally, it can read, as we have read it, and in you all nations will be born through mixing and the mingling in of one inequality. Isaiah had a vision. Isaiah had a vision. Even the art scroll, Chumash, it agrees. In the five places this word is translated as mixed or grafted by the rabbis, the Hebrew word for blessed we find is usually either Barak or Yivrechu. It is not Nivrecha. Nivrechu, excuse me. Using the first letter Yod, instead of the noon that we find with the nivrechu. Now, if we jump to what Paul is talking about in Galatians, Galatians 3, specifically verse 10, 
Rav Shaliak Shaul, addressing the Galatians, talks about the book of the law. By name, he mentions it in verse 10. Now, as he closes and begins to close this address to the Galatians, we find that Paul speaks in verse 29 of this nivrechu. Exactly. This lachak, mingling. And if you are messiahs, even you Gentiles out in the nations, then you are what? Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You are the Nivrechu and the Lachak, those that are mingled in, mingled in with the Levites, mingled in with the Judahites, mingled in with the Naphtaliites, mingled in with the Ephraimites, and you are all one and are now allowed to go up as the priesthood, like Exodus 19, to be in the visionary restored temple of Isaiah 66. This is not, never can be, never was a book of the law reality. It is a Malkitzedic promise of restoration prophesied by Isaiah, who saw over a century before Cyrus, who saw over two centuries later this vision, who prophesied of the Messiah's birth by a virgin and crucifixion by death by crucifixion and resurrection. Yet Peter tells us that he didn't even see with the clarity that you and I now do see in the covenant realm of Melchizedek. I am so excited at this gem, this gem that people ask such phenomenal questions and it just causes me to go into the word and search these things out. And then Yahweh is so faithful to his priesthood, so faithful with the anointing that comes. And he says in Galatians 3, Verse 29, and if you are messiahs, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This confirms the mingling, the nivrechu, the lachak, where he calls the Gentiles, the grafted in physical seed of Abraham, a direct fulfillment of the ve nivrechu of Genesis 12, verse 3, blessing of multiplicity, the Lachak, the vision of Isaiah. Isaiah envisions the fulfillment of the Ver Nivrechu. The fulfillment is the Lachak, the mingling of the Gentiles together with the Levite peoples as the priesthood, those who always assisted were the Levites. They always assisted and they are now assisting all as one because there is neither male or female, slave or free, but all tribes, including those that were once unclean, now permitted in equality like at Exodus 19 where there is no longer a nation with a priest, but there is a kingdom of priests. What a vision from the prophet. They come in equality, all of them, before Yahweh. This can only be 
a return to the Malkitzedic reality with the nations joining the priests. Selah. Now called a holy people, Am HaKodesh, the covenant nation, is promised by Yahweh a restoration of a title first granted at Sinai and the book of the covenant. Exodus 19.6, a goy kadosh, a holy nation. Selah. I mean, let that marinate. What a hope and a blessing and what a vision. Abba, we thank you so much, Abba, for your word. We thank you, Abba, so much for your people, your covenant Malkitzedic priesthood that you have called us from the nations, those that were once unclean, and we have become one. And we now wait, Abba, as you begin the reunification of the priesthood. B'Shem Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen. Amen.